Testing one, two, three. Am I making this pop? Is it suspiciously poppy, popular in here? Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, that's popular. Wonderful. Yeah. If that sounds good, then we can get cracking. Are you recording? Should we go? Yeah, go. We're recording. It's urology. It's not rocket science. It's not even brain surgery. I can't believe the radiologist missed that. It stood out like dogs. You've got to have a sense of humour when you look at genitals, really. Bend over and assume the position. Bladder, most beautiful organ in the body. Talking urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk. A podcast series supported by Ipsen. I'm Joseph Iskia. I'm Nathan Lorenchuk. And we're Talking Urology, where we discuss landmark urological papers and chat to the authors to get some insights into these practice-changing studies. We aim to help doctors develop a deeper understanding of the literature to ensure we apply the right evidence to the right patient. This podcast is made possible by an educational grant from Ipsen, and we really appreciate their ongoing support. Today, we are talking penile rehabilitation. And if you're right now thinking of a cartoon penis doing push-ups in a gym, then we're on the same page. Uh, No, Joseph, I think it's just you. Uh, How about checking into a rehab centre with Charlie Sheen? Uh, Nope, still just you. The paper we are discussing today is called Effects of Tadalafil Treatment on Erectile Function Recovery Following Bilateral Nerve Sparing Radical Prostatectomy, a randomised placebo-controlled study, REACT with first author and the Italian stallion himself, Francesco Montorsi. This study was published in European Urology in 2014. Francesco is a urologist from Milan and well-known for his interest in post-prostatectomy sexual dysfunction, adjunct secretary-general of the AU, and former editor-in-chief of European Urology. Where we should note he was responsible for pumping up its impact factor. Seriously, are you going to keep this up? Now you're getting in the spirit, Nathan. I think this is a really interesting paper because we can all truthfully say that erectile dysfunction post-radical prostatectomy is an issue which we see almost every single day in clinical practice. Of equal importance, a lot of men, particularly younger ones, may put off having surgery for their prostate cancer in the first place because of their desire to remain potent. So papers like this, which illustrate the likely fate of men's potency after surgery and more significantly, their likely recovery and treatment options, are crucial for us to be able to counsel men appropriately. I think there are a lot of men's partners who will be equally intrigued by this paper too. To set a bit of background, all men, whether they realise it or not, have been getting regular nocturnal erections ever since they were a baby. No doubt the majority of men are aware of this fact and are very proud of it. Why this happens is not clearly known, but one good theory is that the penis needs to get regular erections to keep the penile tissues healthy. Regular erections bring in fresh, oxygenated blood and maintain stretch on the penis and stop the permanent closure and fibrosis of the fine capillary networks of the corporate tissue. Using an analogy of an injured arm can help explain the subject of penile rehabilitation a bit further. If you fracture your arm and it is placed in a plaster cast for a few weeks, you will notice that after the cast is discarded, your arm muscles have shrunk significantly or atrophied and become weak. You then need to do rehabilitation, such as physiotherapy and exercises, to get your muscles back to peak strength and function. Similarly, when the penis is unable to get regular erections, its musculature and vessels can also shrink and become atrophied. Although no man will ever like to hear that. However, unlike the muscle in your arm, which is skeletal muscle, the muscle in the penis is made of smooth muscle. While skeletal muscle has a great capacity to rehabilitate even after prolonged periods of inactivity, smooth muscle in the penis can develop irreversible scar tissue as a result of prolonged periods of little or no erectile function. 
With the knowledge that regular erections are important for maintenance of penile health, the concept of penile rehabilitation was born. It sounds pretty painful and like some form of corporal punishment for misbehaviour, but it's actually a very big area in urology right now. The goal of penile rehabilitation is to maximise erectile function recovery by using strategies that help the penis restore the regular erections it needs to prevent scar tissue from forming. Furthermore, when you get an erection, it helps to maintain stretch on the penis, which may help prevent penile shortening in the long run. It's postulated that a key facet of penile rehabilitation is taking regular erectogenic medications such as sildenafil, tadalafil or vardenafil, collectively known as phosphodiesterase inhibitors or PDE5 inhibitors for short. PDE5 inhibitors encourage blood flow to the penis and hopefully prevent a lot of those terrible side effects from taking place. It has been found that these drugs are endothelial protectants. Endothelial cells line all blood vessels in the body. In your penis, they are abundant and many of the substances required to get an erection are made inside these cells, such as cyclic GMP, which causes the release of nitrous oxide with subsequent decreased tone of vessels and increased blood flow into the penis, and voila, an erection. By taking these tablets regularly, you are helping to protect these cells that are vital for getting erections and further help to prevent scar tissue from being laid down. Or so the theory goes. And what better way to test a theory than with a well-conducted, randomised, double-blind trial? Nathan, there is no one I would rather be sitting in a cramped sound booth talking about erections with than you and this man. My name is Francesco Montorsi. I am a urologist in Milan, Italy. I have had uh, always a specific interest in the field of uh, post-prostatectomy impotence. We started uh, in 1996 with the idea of proposing the use of intracapnosal injections following uh, the procedure, and we were the first to show that by doing that, the recovery of spontaneous erections would have been uh, improved. And from there, all the rest. It was a pleasure to have Francesco join us for his expert insights. No doubt he was a hero to many men with that finding. I must say, Joseph, I'm surprised that penile rehabilitation in some quarters is still a poorly practiced and poorly understood area. We asked Francesco, is this an area we should be paying a lot more attention to? It depends from the perspective you're using, because it is very controversial if you look for an evidence behind that. It is not controversial because everybody's using that. What I mean is that I don't know a surgeon who is doing a radical prostatectomy himself, who is not telling his patients, take Cialis, take Viagra, take Levitra. I can't recall of one single colleague who would tell the patient, take nothing. And I'm sure that this is the case in Australia, it is the case in the UK, it is in the case wherever. Also for those who are very methodologically strict, who could uh, say, well, but there is no evidence. Yes, and what, what are you going to do? You tell your patient to do nothing, and the patient is asking you, should I take a pill? And so are you taking the responsibility as a physician to tell him no? Why do you want to throw away your money? No one is doing that. So this study aimed to evaluate the effect of the early use of long-acting PDE5 inhibitor Tadalafil once daily or on demand on both assisted and unassisted erectile function in men who developed erectile dysfunction after nerve-sparing radical prostatectomy. The key point there is early, which implies rehab rather than just seeing if the tablets work. We know the tablets work, and hence, this is a phase four trial, and this multi-institutional, double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled study was born. 
key entry criteria for the study are men less than 68 years of age at the time of nerve-sparing radical prostatectomy for organ-confined prostate cancer who were eligible to participate if they had no history of erectile dysfunction. An International Index of Erectile Function, Erectile Function Domain Score, or IIEF-EF score, of greater than or equal to 22 was required at screening, meaning that they had to have quite good erections to start with. Men also had to satisfy all of the following eligibility criteria. Historical PSA levels below 10 nanograms per mil, a Gleason score of less than or equal to 7 on biopsy, and no other significant comorbidities. Confirmed bilateral nerve sparing prostatectomy had to be undertaken and no need for adjuvant prostate cancer therapy. And importantly, they had to have proven erectile dysfunction after surgery defined by a patient-reported residual erectile function or REF score of less than or equal to 3, which allowed men up to erections that were hard enough for penetration but not completely hard. I don't know if the men or their partners had the final say on this one. I think this is a really important point, Nathan. These are confident guys with very good erections coming in, and some had reasonable erections post-op already, looking for better. And we must be careful extrapolating any benefits of penile rehabilitation that might have come out of this study to those men with very poor erections preoperatively or postoperatively, or who did not have a great nerve-sparing operation. In total, 423 men were randomised, with about 140 in each arm. As Nathan mentioned, the study excluded men with significant comorbidities such as cardiovascular disease, hypertension or diabetes. Given that nowadays most of us are overweight, eat ourselves silly and don't exercise enough, I'm intrigued to know why they were excluded and if the findings of the study might also be applicable to those with the aforementioned comorbidities. The reason why we did not want patients with significant vascular risk factors is because those would be at risk not to recover erectile function, even more at risk than the normal population. So we really wanted to have those who could really have the potential to recover. This is why we tried our best to identify the most healthy patients and the best surgeons. Considering your question, which is well taken, I think that the findings can be extrapolated also to those uh, patient subsets, but clearly one should uh, expect the results which are not so good. The study design is very important to understand when interpreting the final result. After the screening period, patients were randomised to one of three groups. Number one, Tadalafil, 5 milligram once daily, plus placebo on demand. Group two, daily placebo with Tadalafil, 20 milligrams on demand, or group three, placebo once daily and on demand. The intervention was a nine-month double-blind treatment period in one of these three groups. Then a six-week drug-free washout period to get rid of any lingering effects of the active drugs for those who received them. And finally, a three-month open-label treatment period where all groups got the drug. For on-demand dosing, patients were permitted to take up to three tablets per week and no more than one per day. During drug-free washout, patients received no study drug. During the open-label period, all patients received Tadalafil 5 milligrams once daily. The primary objective was to evaluate the efficacy of Tadalafil 5 milligrams once daily and Tadalafil 20 milligrams on demand compared with placebo when taken over nine months in improving unassisted erectile function. Secondary outcomes include the actual values and changes from baseline in International Index of Erectile Function Score, positive responses to sexual encounter profile questions, and changes in stretched penile length in the flaccid state. And I am confident that all men would have been totally honest if it had been self-reporting their penile length. And now for the results. Drum roll, please. 
the primary objective of the study was not met. There was no statistical difference in the ability of Tadalafil daily or on-demand compared to placebo given during the initial rehab phase to give men an unassisted erection during the open-label phase, i.e., in this study, penile rehab did not improve men's ability to get erections down the track. Now, make no mistake, Tadalafil clearly works as evidence during the initial nine-month phase, where men in the Tadalafil daily group, but in fact not in the on-demand group, were statistically significantly more likely than placebo to get a good erection. However, the treatment effect for Tadalafil once daily was not sustained after drug-free washout period. But in the open-label phase, when all men were on daily Tadalafil, men in all three treatment groups experienced improved erections, with about 30% of men achieving an international index of erectile function score of 22 or better. It just didn't matter if they had got the Tadalafil early or not. Similar findings were evident in the sexual encounter profile questions, and with only the Tadalafil once daily group showing a significant improvement during the double-blind treatment period. Again, no significant sexual encounter profile differences were observed after the drug-free washout. Nathan, let's cut to the chase. The only reason people are still listening is to hear what happened to penile length. You will all be ecstatic to discover that there was significantly less shrinkage observed in the once-daily group compared with placebo at the end of the double-blind treatment period. In fact, the Tadalafil on-demand group had more shrinkage and must have felt like they'd been left out in the cold. On that note, let's ask Francesco to summarise the findings in his own words. The study did not show any difference between the drug and placebo when patients were left alone to see the real recovery without drugs. So the patients were treated either with Cialis or placebo. Then they were left alone for a while and we could not see any difference. We were expecting and hoping that those who were on treatment with Cialis would have shown a continuous improvement of their function, which did not happen. This being said, when they were challenged again with Cialis, we found a difference between the response of those who had been receiving Cialis from the very beginning compared to those who had received placebo initially and Cialis later on. As an additional finding, we measured the length of the flaccid penis before and after, and uh, we did find a significant difference in the length, suggesting that probably the use of uh, Cialis is able in some way to protect the integrity of the muscle. I can see Tadalafil sales soaring after Francesco's last comment. Seriously, though, do these results not effectively signal the death of penile rehabilitation as we have known it? Is this study just telling us that if men want to have erections, we give them PDE5 inhibitors? I think that the concept of rehab is today mostly the concept of trying to have sex as much as possible, as frequently as possible. What I tell my patients, and you can quote me, is that it is time to go back to high school and to practice masturbation as much as possible. One could say that, for example, the vacuum device could also be used for the same uh, reason without using the band at the root of the penis. I have nothing against that. But uh, so rehabilitation would be like uh, you break your leg and uh, after the operation or whatever, you need to start walking. 
And if you stay on the contrary, you lay on your bed and you do nothing all day, then it would be difficult to get your muscle back. It is exactly the same concept so that uh, people should try as much as they can. Typically, if they try by themselves, they don't have performance anxiety. And so it is easier to get the better elections. So if you use them, that would be the, already the rehabilitation I'm talking about. But if you add drugs, things are indeed uh, much better that we have seen over the last 15 years. So whenever one is using a pill, it is always much better. Hilarious, Francesco. I love it. It is time to go back to high school and to practice masturbation as much as possible. I never thought I'd hear those words uttered on one of our podcasts. Men are going to love you now that you're recommending as much sex as possible. The next obvious question for me concerns the choice of drug in the study. I wonder if all PD-5 inhibitors might show the same response, or is it that Tadalafil's longer half-life might be contributing to a better response? Let's get Francesco's thoughts. This is a good question from a pharmacological perspective. Tadalafil should be considered the best possible drug. But if you use, on the contrary, also a short-acting drug, which is used frequently, though, every day, every other day, combined with sexual stimulation. We just don't know what is the difference, and perhaps it is absolutely the same. So today, in my country, the decision from the patient is most a decision based on cost. So the, the cheapest thing they would do. At this moment, uh, sildenafil generic, which costs uh, one-fifth of Cialis in my country, is number one drugs. Today, I would tell my patients to take sildenafil 100 milligram an hour prior to practice sex, uh, including masturbation, sex with their partner, and uh, to do that as much as possible. Best advice I've ever heard. Sounds like an excellent recommendation. I'm a bit curious as to why the rate of return of good erections was lower in Francesco's paper than compared to other studies during the open-label phase. The major problem there is always that uh, you cannot compare apples and oranges because patients are different and unless one uh, is really looking at uh, the same patient population, there, there will always be differences. Just another thought, Joseph. Some of our listeners will already be using injectables for their erectile dysfunction, or at least for their patients. Where does this all leave us with injectables in the treatment algorithm? We asked Francesco his thoughts. First of all, if the patient received a bad operation, which means a very significant operation, the disease was bad to start with, I am indeed telling him, listen, we did all we could to save something, but as for sure, we did not save a lot, take used injections. For those who are in the elderly range of the population, we would tell them, use the injections. With those who would tell me, well, I had sex before, but I had to take Viagra, and uh, sometimes it was so-so, I would tell him, you should have uh, injections. All the others, they would start uh, with uh, the pills. I really like this paper, and I love Francesco's refreshing approach to it all. So, Francesco, what is your take-home message after all of that, apart from encouraging men to have sex as frequently as they possibly can? 
that unfortunately, although we do not have a robust scientific evidence about the value of this treatment, we all know that uh, there is some effectiveness and that patients are happy to use the pills and that uh, I foresee that more and more patients will be using these. I didn't think we needed any other take-home message, Joseph. The only message I'm taking home, and presumably most of our men out there, is that lots of sex is good for maintaining erections. Seems like a win-win situation. Seriously, though, Francesco, what's the next study you'd like to do in an ideal world to advance our knowledge and understanding of penile rehabilitation? The clear study that would need to be done would be one where the drug has to be joined with a good frequency of sex. That has never been studied. So leave the patient alone and he does whatever he wants to do compared to the patient is instructed to try to practice masturbation or whatever three times per week, for example. But that has never been done, but this should continue for at least two years. And then you could expose uh, the patient to nothing. Uh, what I mean is that practice by yourself without a pill or combined with a pill. Because this is, at the end of the day, what the patients are doing. Everybody has been seeing an improvement in the recovery of erections after robotic prostatectomy going uh, ahead for at least two and a half years or so, not only the first year. A really interesting paper. Like we said at the outset, it's a topic which we encounter nearly every day in clinical practice. Thanks so much for joining us, Francesco. You were very entertaining. We've been Talking Urology today with Francesco Montorsi. We still have some great podcasts coming up, including Neil Fleshner discussing his Redeem study on dutasteride in men on active surveillance for prostate cancer. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can contact us with questions, corrections, or updates at talkingurology at gmail.com. You've been listening to Talking Urology Podcast with Joseph Iskier and Nathan Laurentia, written by Mark Quinlan and Joseph Iskier, produced by Joseph Iskier and Cara Webb, and proudly supported by Ibsen, who put the A in ADT. This has been Talking Urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Laurenchuk, a podcast series supported by Ibsen. Thank you.